Praise God. Thank you so much for being here. If you're a guest of ours, my name is Craig, and uh, we're in week number three of a series entitled Kingdom and Empires. Uh, two weeks ago, I kicked this series off with a message entitled The Missing Middle. In that message, I challenged the Christian preoccupation with what I called the bookends of the, Christ, of the life of Christ. Bookend being Christmas, the incarnation, Easter, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And I said there's a cost to that. The cost to emphasizing the ends of Jesus' life, the beginning and the end, is that we miss the middle. Consequently, what we have, typically speaking in the church, is, is a reality that if we were to ask a Christian who'd spent any decent amount of time in church growing up to explain why it was or why it is that Jesus died, we give a pretty good scriptural answer. Ask the, the same Christian, could you explain to me please, why did Jesus live? And we wouldn't get the same clarity. And there's a consequence to that. The consequence is that Jesus has been almost exclusively of the last 40 to 50 years being proclaimed as the Savior of our souls at the expense of us not recognizing that He is truly the ruler of our lives. You see, Jesus' life mattered. That tells us that all life matters. Jesus' life had a context. That context was the, the context of Brad's. Do you want to push the space bar, guys? Let me get this right, please. This happened in the first service as well, so we're going to have some fun here. Okay, take it from the top, guys. Tell me when it's done. Uh, basically, last week, there we go. Now, I'm going to check whether I can actually do this. I can do this. Okay. Last week, we uh, shared, Brad shared, the context for the life of Christ. Now, some of you were here last week, and we said that you'd be able to get this, this uh, timeline of the Scriptures from Genesis through Revelation, and we printed thousands of copies, and by the time you got here, many of you couldn't take one. So the good news is, when you leave here today, you will be able to take one of these. And what we did here was we essentially showed the context for the life of Christ, that, that Jesus, as Brad said last week, didn't simply come to save us from our sins. He came to restore all things, which includes saving us from our sins. But Brad said last week, if all we reduce the gospel to is restoring simply the first relationship there, the relationship that we enjoy with God, then we have shortchanged 75% of the gospel. No, there's more to the gospel than this. There's more to, the, to the, the coming of Jesus than simply to die on a cross. The gospels tell us that the incarnation was necessary to inaugurate the kingdom of God that necessitated the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this idea of the kingdom. If you have a Bible, please uh, turn with me uh, to 
uh, to Matthew chapter 3. You're going to need a copy of the Scriptures today. If you need a copy of the Scriptures and you haven't got one, you can raise your hand in the air, and the ushers will uh, give you a copy of the Scriptures. But while you're doing that, let's just have a look again at the context for the kingdom. What, we're gonna, what we see here is the fact that these are the Scripture references for the kingdom of God in the Bible, 365 of them. How many days are there in a year, typically? 365. It's as if God wants us each and every day to wake up realizing today God's going to speak a word to me, and that word is His kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. 365, one for every day of the year. We're going to focus in a little bit further into the New Testament. We can see the, the teaching of the, of the kingdom in the New Testament here, 151 references. What we're doing in this series is really narrowing in to the expression in the Gospels, and there you see it. This is the missing middle. This is the part of the, of the life of Jesus that we miss out on. And here we see in Matthew chapter 3, it's page 967. If you had a Bible from our ashes, here we see the, the kind of context for the teaching of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we read this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Notice that John the Baptist, the forerunner to Christ, comes and says, hey, there's something you need to do. You need to repent, which means change your mind. Change your mind about what? The kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it's come near. I'm going to unpack that phrase in just a moment. But John then starts preaching this message. We go into chapter 4, have a look at, at, Luke, at Matthew rather, chapter 4, and we can see here in chapter 4 that Jesus now begins preaching. In chapter 4 and verse 12, we read this, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. John was put in prison for proclaiming justice and righteousness. He challenged the leaders that be. He was put in prison. Verse 12, drop down to verse 17, and then Jesus began to preach. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, look at His message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So you see this with John the Baptist. Hey guys, you need to change your mind about the kingdom because it's coming. John is put in prison. Jesus takes up that mantle. Hey guys, this is what we need to do. We need to change our mind about the kingdom because it's coming. In fact, He says, it's here. I want you to notice another text, Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we read the same idea. What's interesting in Luke chapter 4, of course, is once again the context. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has entered into the synagogue in Nazareth, having been tempted by the adversary in the wilderness. For 40 days. Brad said 40 days. Why 40 days? Because Jesus' life is set against the backdrop of the Exodus. He's reliving the Old Testament 
story, the story of Israel. Whereas they succumbed in the wilderness, Jesus did not. And from there, the Spirit leads him into the synagogue in Nazareth. A scroll is handed to him from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus looks at the scroll. He opens the scroll to the point where it proclaims that kingdom agenda. Jesus reads from this scroll, says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your midst, and they were amazed. And then he was slightly irritated at their amazement, and they are so angry with him, they nearly kill him, but he manages somehow to walk through them. He sets about his ministry, healing many, and there we read this in 42 and 43. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Now notice here, Matthew says the kingdom of heaven, writing to a Jewish audience. Jews would have been reluctant to proclaim the name of God. So Matthew changes that to the kingdom of heaven. For Luke, more of a Gentile audience, he just uses the phrase kingdom of God. It means essentially the same thing. So I have come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Does it stop there? No. What does it say? It says, because this is why I was sent. Why was Jesus sent? To proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. To say the kingdom of God has come near. That's why he was sent. Some of you may say, Craig, wasn't Jesus sent to die? Yes, he was. But his death was needed because he came to inaugurate the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God necessitated Jesus going to a cross, being buried, rising again, ascending to the Father, interceding for you and me, and one day we look forward to that time when Jesus will come again and all will be as it should be. This is the context of the life of Jesus, and if we only focus on his death, or we only focus on his birth, we call those people who do that Christa people, right? Christmas and Easter people. If that's all we do, we miss why Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, what's the context for this? This is why Jesus was sent. So, what's the context for this? With that, I want you to go in your Old Testament to a psalm that is very helpful, Psalm 115 in the Old Testament. Again, if you have Bibles from the ashes, you can see the page number there. That is page 608. But let's look at Psalm 115. And in Psalm 115, we're going to begin to have a feel for the background to Jesus' use of this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. There's a context here. Let's look at the context. Look at verse 16 of Psalm 115. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth He has given to mankind. The highest heaven, that was the old way of saying the heavens, what we call heaven, the highest heavens. So who does heaven belong to? What does the text say? Who does heaven belong to? The Lord. But what about the earth? He's given that to us. So notice the context here then. 
with the idea of the coming of the kingdom of God, the, the people of God would have recognized that there is a place that belongs truly and totally to God. That place is heaven. And so when we think of heaven according to this psalm, we recognize that God lays claim to heaven and the highest of heavens. That basically belongs to him. Now, the writer here in the Psalms is talking about spheres. He's talking about realms of authority. So heaven is the realm, it is the sphere where things are as God intends them to be. The psalmist has already let us know that fact in Psalm 115. Look at verse 3. We read this. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. It's essentially saying the same thing, that heaven is the realm where everything as God in, is as God intends it to be. There is, Brad told us last week, shalom. Shalom is not this absence of conflict or this inner peace. It is wholeness. In heaven, there is wholeness. Everything is as it was intended to be. So heaven is a realm of authority. It's where God's perfect will, God's perfect desires are carried out. This happens in the heavens. But this psalmist tells us that there's a second place. There is earth, the earth he has given to mankind. So earth then is a realm that has been given to you and me. And right now we can do with this earth whatever we deem fit and right for now. It's not always going to be that way, but for now. And what's interesting is that in Psalm 115, when you look at verse 3, God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. He does what pleases Him, and everything in heaven pleases Him. From that point on, the psalmist goes on to, to talk about the people of God and how they have been given this earth, and they have chosen not to worship the God who, who gave them this creation, but rather worship idols. The whole idea here is that heaven is the place where God is. It is the place where everything is as God intends it to be. But the earth, He has given to us. And the question that the psalmist is basically asking is, what will we do with this? What will we do with the earth that we have been given? Now, if you've got a heaven the place where God is, the place where everything is as God intends it to be, and you've got the place on earth where we have the choice, then it introduces us essentially to another idea. It's the idea of hell. And hell is essentially a place or a realm that is absent, absent of God's goodness and absent of God's presence. That's the horror of hell. The horror of hell is that there can actually be a place which is totally contrary to what God would want. The horror of hell is in the absence of the relationship with God. So when Jesus introduced this, this idea of the kingdom of God, or really didn't introduce it, carried it on, when he wanted to change people's minds about what they thought of the kingdom, this is essentially the context. You, we've got three ideas there. We've got three realms, okay? We've got this idea of the earth as the battleground where God and the adversary essentially duke it out. They fight it out. And all of that happens because 
As Brad talked last week, shalom has been destroyed. And this is the way it is. So consider it then something like this. You have heaven and hell. We use these languages, these terms, don't we, to talk about experiences. So think about it this way. Vipke, for some strange reason, and Larry Olinson decided that they were going to run a 50-mile ultra. They did that yesterday. So it was my heavenly privilege to, uh, to, to stand there while, in my view, my wife went through a living hell while she actually ran 50 miles. Amazing to me, she thought that hellish experience, in my view, was actually something heavenly. The whole idea sometimes of heaven and hell is a subjective experience, but we use this language, don't we? Oh, that was heavenly. It was heavenly for me looking at people going through agony while I drunk my coffee, put my feet up. But we also use this language living hell, don't we? It's an experience. Right up here, it just seems like a context, but it's, it, you know, a philosophical issue, but it's not. It's real. Some people really are going through a living hell right here on earth. Whenever I think of that, I think of my cousin Stuart. He's about five years younger than me. And a number of years ago, Stuart started to have back problems, his late 20s which actually resulted in a diagnosis of a degenerate spine, which now means that he is in a wheelchair where every movement causes him complete and utter pain. Over and over again, he says, this is a living hell. It's a living hell. It's agony. He tells our family it's an agony not to be able to play sport with his two kids, not be able to, to go for a walk with his, with his wife. It's a living hell. So while we've got this up here, and it just seems like a context, the reality is it, it's not just a philosophical topic. This is, the, this is a reality. Some of you may be in here, and life is heavenly, but there may well be others of you in here for whom life is, quite simply put, a living hell. And what is happening in the scriptural idea of the term is that there is a, a kind of a, a war, a seeming war going on here between the goodness of God, and the controlling power of sin. And when Jesus introduces this idea of, hey, the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he's essentially saying is, look, the kingdom of God has come to break in and to stop and to push out the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus says, this comes with me. And from here on in, because I am here, the kingdom of darkness will be pushed back. The power of hell will be pushed back. In fact, he says, I will build my church and nothing, not even the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will prevail against it. This is, this is the context. And so we see heaven and hell. We think of good and evil. And in the context of the scriptures, we think of shalom, wholeness, and chaos. And so the earth, in a sense, is that battleground where these two things work its way out. The highest heavens belong to the Lord. Now think about this in this context, but the earth He has given to you. Think about that. Think about that in this spiritual context. He has given the earth to you. What's the question? What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with this reality? 
What are we going to do with this power that every child of God who has experienced the breaking of the controlling power of sin on their life is now able to do? What are we going to do with this? To understand what we're talking about here, I want you to note that the definition of kingdom that Dallas Willard introduces in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Willard says, kingdom is the range of your effective will. Kingdom is the range of your effective will. In other words, what is, is what you want to be. What is, is what you want to be. Is what is in your kingdom what God wants it to be? Because see, if you truly understand why Jesus came, you understand His death on the cross. First John 3 tells us, the Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. What is the devil's work? Sin from the beginning. So if the Son of God came to destroy the controlling power of the, of the enemy over our life, then we no longer have to be subject to the desires of sin, death, in hell. We no longer have to live that way. So is what is in our life what God intends it to be? This is, the, this is the real application here. This is the implication of this. Because the idea of the life of Jesus is that when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come, he is making a proclamation that through himself, God's will and God's ways, what's that word? Are going to advance. There's no question about it. There's no doubt about it. Because Jesus came, God's will and God's ways are going to advance. So what is true in heaven is now going to be true on earth. The kingdom of heaven is going to advance. Some of you may, may think about this and you may think, Craig, does, I thought the kingdom was a, was a future reality. Well, with that, I want us to go back to this proclamation of Jesus where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven has come near is the Greek word here for come near, it's angizo. And basically what it means is, it is coming near, it is present, and it is present right here, right now. It has dawned. It has present implications. With the coming of Jesus, with the ministry of Jesus, and certainly through the Christ event, the cross to the ascension, and to the gift of the Spirit, the kingdom of God is advancing. Now Jesus, of course, didn't speak Greek, did he? But even in Hebrew, we find the same idea. Karav is that term. It means to come near. It's often used of sexual union where a husband and a wife will come near to one another. Very present implications in that one. And so it's an idiomatic expression which basically means the kingdom of heaven is here. So in other words, when we talk of the kingdom of heaven, we will often talk about the future, that time, Revelation 20, 21, where there will be the new earth, that time where everything will be as God intends it to be. And we can often think that the kingdom is something in the, in the future. But the reality is the kingdom of God is here. It is a present reality. This is what Jesus taught. So what, what is that? What does that mean? How does that work? What does that 
look like? Well, let's be clear then about what the kingdom of heaven is not. If the kingdom of heaven is here, it is advancing, what isn't it? Well, what the kingdom of heaven is not is heaven itself. It isn't a physical place. It isn't heaven in the sense of what we normally think of heaven as the place we go to when we die. The kingdom of heaven is far more than that. More than that, the kingdom of heaven is not the church. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we can't think simply of central. We can't think that any one church has a monopoly on the kingdom. Every church has the responsibility to advance the kingdom, but the kingdom it's in its entirety is never found in one church. But the amazing thing is when one church decides to do God's will, in other words, when individual Christians commit to being the hands and feet of Jesus and outside live in such a way that they say every day, God, let my life today be a part of your kingdom, what invariably happens is that these different churches start to find that there's a common agenda that God is working on. That truth came home to me just this week. On Thursday evening, I was invited with Vipka to attend a small group. And as I went through the door in the small group, I began to recognize some of the faces. Thank God for Facebook, right? <laughs> and I'm there, and I recognize, wait a minute, I know your faces, not just because you're a friend of mine on Facebook, but actually because your small group did something. Your small group actually built a ramp to help the child a disabled child and a mother uh, help her disabled child out of the house. So while we were there, I said to them, could you tell me the story? What happened? And they said, well, it's really her idea. And they pointed to a lady and she said, well, I'm a, a bus driver. I drive a school bus and I drive the, the bus for disabled children. And she said, for the last year, I would pull up to this one house, and I would watch this lady struggle to pull her disabled child out of the house. And you've got to imagine, these were steep steps. And she said, as I watched her do this, I was thinking, God, I've got to do something. So she said, for about a year, I've been praying for this lady. God, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. But I, I found no way forward, she said. And she said, it took a turn uh, for the good around Lent last year. Lent last year, we started a series in John 19 and 20. We did short circles. Many of you are in short circles right now. A group of people who get together just for a short season of time to discuss questions from the, uh, about the sermon. And uh, I got together with, with this group of people. We were a short circle, she said, and we enjoyed our time with one another so much that we decided to become a small group. And there in my small group, I started to share about the this request that I had for, for this mother and her disabled child. And then somebody came up with the idea, why don't we do it? So they priced out what it would cost the ramp to be built, and it would be $5,000. So they decided to do it themselves, and they did it for $450. And one Sunday afternoon after church, they all went out with the hands and feet of Jesus and built this ramp onto the onto the side of the house. Now, this is where it gets interesting. As they were finished, a lady from across the street came over to them and said, what church are you from? Kind of figured that it had to be a church, Christians that would do something like that. And so the group turned around and said, Central. 
And the lady threw her arms up in the air and said, oh, praise God, I'm actually in La Roca. They meet in about an hour, uh, hour's time in our chapel. I'm from La Roca, and I've been praying and trying to invite this family to church for such a long time. Thank you for doing this. Do you see what I mean? No one church has a monopoly on the kingdom. No one church can say that we are the kingdom in its entirety, but when individual Christians who belong to one specific church start to do what God wants them to do, live as the hands and feet of Jesus, ask themselves, in what way can we bring a touch of the kingdom into a person's life? It's amazing how all of the strands start to weave together, and suddenly we discover, wow, people in this other church actually love Jesus too. What a surprise, huh? So the kingdom isn't heaven. The kingdom of heaven isn't the church. The church is a part of the kingdom. And thirdly here, it's not only a future hope. The kingdom of heaven isn't something we experience or something we first experience when we die. Many people associate the kingdom of heaven with the second coming of Christ. That's not what it is. Far more than that. Of course, the second coming of Christ is a part of the kingdom, but to, to expect the kingdom of God to come when Christ comes again for the first time is to misunderstand what Jesus was saying. So what was Jesus saying? This is what Jesus taught. For Jesus, the kingdom was not a place, but it was a power, the power of God that was at work in the world to bring shalom, to bring a touch of heaven to the entire world. It was a present reality, but there was more to come. People talk about the now and the not yet of the kingdom. We prefer to talk about the already and the more to come of the kingdom. And so the whole idea here of the teaching of the kingdom is that with the coming of Jesus, with the life of Jesus, with the teaching of Jesus, with the activity of Jesus that extends through all of us, what is true in heaven becomes increasingly true on earth. That's why Jesus came. Because of the kingdom of heaven, he said, I was sent. And guess what? That's why the church exists. Because of the kingdom of heaven. And if we limit the kingdom of heaven simply to a person's relationship with God, we have shortchanged 75% of the kingdom message. Oh, that's important. As Brad said last week, salvation, my relationship with God is not where the journey ends, it's where the journey begins. And if that's where it begins, then quite simply, the goal here is simply this, that we orient our empires, our personal worlds, to God's kingdom, so that God's kingdom advances in our lives and throughout our world. Essentially, what happens is heaven comes crashing down to earth. That's the goal. That's the reason we exist. And what we long for as a church is for, for people who call Central their home to come in here on a Sunday to be encouraged, to be cared for, to be challenged, to go out there and actually, through the week, reorient our personal, private worlds to the world that God is seeking to build. That really is our challenge. And so the question truly is, how, how are you doing at that? Last week, Brad shared that 
When sin entered the world, shalom was shattered, and we've been living in brokenness ever since. Sin is the great leveler. Sin means that all of us come in here today as broken people seeking to experience the wholeness of God in every aspect of our lives. Some parts of that we will need to wait for until we close our eyes for the last time or until when Jesus Christ comes again. But there is much that we are still to experience. The question is, how is your individual brokenness being challenged by your walk with God so that it will be restored into a piece of this pot? Part of the whole. We're all broken, and the real challenge is for you and for me not to allow our brokenness to stop us from becoming a part of what God is building in this world. There is one kingdom of God, but unfortunately, in the church, there are many empires. And the challenge for the Christian is to allow our empire to become nothing. As John said, I must decrease so that he must increase. How is that working for you? How is your empire being transformed into a more accurate reflection of God's kingdom. We all have empires. We all have things that we hold on to, sometimes too tightly. And part of what the kingdom expectation does is it works in the hearts of Christians to ask ourselves, am I truly living the life of Christ in the way He wants me to? Are there certain things that I'm holding too tightly onto? That's a challenge for all of us. It's a a challenge for me. What are the things that I put a priority on in my own life, I ask myself, that have nothing to do with what God is doing in the kingdom? Invariably, as a pastor, I will go and meet other pastors. We did this the other week. There was a, there was a pastor day at the school that my uh, children attend, and I went over there, and I mingled with a number of pastors. We've got a lot of pastors in this town, haven't we? Wow. And I mingled with a number of them, and invariably they ask you, so who are you, what church are you from? And I say central, and they say, oh, the big one across the street, and I say yes. And then the question goes, so how many people go there? I hate that question. Because quite honestly, it's not a matter of how many people who come, it's a matter of how many people are sent. And I, I tell them, and they're like, wow, how big is your building, by the way? How big is your auditorium? And I tell them, and they're like, wow. It's as if sometimes, you see, us pastors can evaluate God's kingdom according to the little empire that, that is actually in here. And we define success by getting more people through the door. <laughs> the reality of the kingdom is God defines success as the more people we send out of the door. And what we long for here is a return to, to central, in a sense, in the in, the, in its glory days, some could say, between 1991 and 2000, Central managed to send 100 people full-time across the world. We have missionaries in 21 of 25 time zones. Do you know that? Fully supported. But guess what? you know what we long for? We don't long simply to send out special people. We long for ordinary people, people like you and me, to recognize that we're being sent to. We long for people 
who are in their schools, mums at home, people in the workplace, just to say, God, what do you want to do through me today? How, how can I be responsible for laying down what is important to me, my empire, and actually build something about what is important to you. And do you know what happens if you start to pray that prayer? All of a sudden, you start to realize that there are certain things that are too important to you that God says, you need to lay those things down. You need to be willing to let this thing go. It was Jim Elliot who said, what is it, blessed is the one who gives up what he cannot gain for that which he can never lose. Are there certain things that are really important to you in your life right now? That if God were to come to you and say, I want you to lay that down for the sake of this, could you do that? I asked that question because a number of years ago, God asked me to do something like that, and I couldn't understand what God was saying or why He would say it. It was about a year, a year and a half, after I'd come to the States from Germany. I was here with an R1 visa, which is a religious worker one visa, which basically means I'm allowed to work in America simply for this particular job, no other job. I got into a church situation that was quite desperate, difficult. The, start of the, the, the economy had tanked, Tampa is a financial institution, the housing market collapsed, the church that I, um, I kind of led was millions of dollars in debt, we were way behind budget, and I'm looking at all of this thinking, God, what on earth am I supposed to do here? Thank you for this call, I thought to myself. And as I'm praying, I'm noticing what some of this tension is doing to the staff. And all of a sudden, I notice that there is an executive-level conflict where one of the executive pastors is basically questioning the salvation of the other executive pastor's wife. And I'm like, God, this is getting worse. And I realized that there has actually been a, that kind of conflict going on for eight to ten years, that actually the enemy is working, wreaking havoc from within sight. And I'm thinking, God, I need to do something here. There's a problem. The problem was that this person who was wreaking all the havoc actually controlled all of the committees, all of the teams. That's what you call religion at work in the church. I'm a newbie. To make matters worse, I'm a foreigner. I speak funny. This may be a big city, but the church was located in a small town. It was like as though I was the outsider. I'm thinking, God, I don't know if I can win this, but I can't allow this to go on. What do you want me to do? And so I began to pray, began to seek God's face for the church. And as God started to give me ways forward with the church, there was still this one issue, what do I do with this relational conflict? How do I deal with this? How do I deal with this? And then one day as I'm praying, God gave me a passage. It was the arrest of Jesus. And he said, Craig, I want you to meditate on this passage. And so for three weeks, every morning, I would meditate on this passage. And I would say, God, what are you teaching me? What do you want me to do as a result of this passage? I journaled it. And after three weeks, I felt that I had been told by God what to do, and so I sent my journal to trusted pastors across the country and across the world, and I said, I want you to look at this text. This is my situation. This is what God is telling me to do. I want you to tell me whether I've exegeted the text incorrectly. They all wrote back to me and said, Craig, you have not exegeted the text incorrectly, but if you do this, this is a big risk. 
God was telling me to follow the example of Jesus, not pick up a sword, but to actually be willing to lay down my life. What did that mean? It basically means resigning from my position, committing myself and my family to have to move back to Germany, uprooting all of my children that just got settled from, an English lang- from a German language education into an English language education in order to draw out the issue. Because for me, it wasn't a power struggle. It was about God's will being done in the church. And the only way I could do this was actually to take myself out of the equation and raise the issue. That's what God told me to do. That's what I did. Some of you are wondering, what did your wife think about this? She said this from the beginning, and I was the one that needed time to catch up. She's the type of person that will lay everything on the line for doing what is right. And I said, Vipka, do you know what this means? It will mean that we will have to uproot all of our children. We will have to move all back to Europe again. Can you imagine what this will do to our children? And she said, Craig, what is right? What is God saying? You know what God is saying. Give it up. Give it up. I remember writing that letter. Resigning from the church, drawing out the issue, and then taking a step back and saying, okay, God, now what? See, as a pastor, I know that my value and my worth can often come from the position that I hold. But you know what? That's my empire. That's not God's kingdom. And through that experience, I learned this church is not mine. It's His. And I discovered that the more I'm willing to give away, the more God delights in giving back. That's not prosperity theology. That's just kingdom economy. Lay down your life, the father said to the son, and you watch the inheritance that will come as a result of what you do. And so that's what I did. And God worked that situation through. The leadership came back to me and they said, please don't resign. We'll deal with this issue. We dealt with the issue. And from the time that I was there, God just blessed the church. And I honestly take it back to that moment where I was willing to lay down what I considered to be my empire and just placed it at the feet of Jesus and said, God, what I want more than anything else is for your kingdom to be built. Church, I'll say it again. Sometimes our own brokenness, our own needs actually stop us from seeing God's kingdom built. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. God says to us, He invites us, lay down your broken pieces, your brokenness at the cross, and allow me to transform you. Allow nothing to be more important to you, not your house, not your car, not your boat, not your job. Allow nothing to be more important for you than my kingdom. Seek first my kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, with this in mind, what I want to do to wrap this up is I want to take us to the Lord's Prayer. I want us to read the Lord's Prayer and to think about the Lord's Prayer simply from this vantage point. What's interesting here, in the other Gospels, we realize that Jesus taught this prayer to his disciples because the disciples saw Jesus at prayer and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Here's what's interesting. The disciples saw Jesus preaching. They didn't say, teach us how to preach. They saw Jesus teaching. They didn't say, teach us how to teach. 
but they saw Jesus praying, and they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Do you know what this tells me? We're going to learn about prayer. Parents, your kids are going to learn about prayer, not because you teach it to them in the classroom, not because our student pastors or our children's workers will teach about prayer in the classroom, but because they see you practicing prayer. Prayer is not learned in the classroom. It's learned in life. And he says, okay, I'll teach you to pray. In the first part here in Matthew 6 from verse, uh, what is it, from verse 5, he actually says, this is how not to pray. And then he says, this is how to pray. Look at the words and think about these words in the light of what I've said. Our Father in heaven. The context here is Psalm 115, verse 16. God is everywhere, right? But this isn't about where God is. This is about Jesus rooting this prayer in the Jewish reality of God being in the highest heavens or heaven where everything is as God intends it to be. Our Father in heaven. Our Father who is in whose heavens, whose presence, in whose presence there is nothing other than goodness and shalom. And then he goes on from there, hallowed be your name. God, may your name be made holy. That's what it means. Be sanctified. May it be set apart. May it be known. How? Through the actions of us, your people. As we go about living our day, may we go about our day sanctifying your name, making your name holy and great in the way that we live. Thirdly, your kingdom come. Your will be done. God, your kingdom, your rule, your reign, your will, your way, may that be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Some of you, you, you've prayed this prayer hundreds of times, and you grew up in churches that prayed this prayer every week. A few weeks ago when we started this series, a man came in here with his wife and two children. It's the first time they've been in Central, and uh, he loved the service, but he said, hey, I'm used to being in a church where at the end of every service, we would just pray the Lord's Prayer. Do you ever pray the Lord's Prayer? We've prayed this prayer hundreds and hundreds of times. But how many of us have prayed this prayer, asking this prayer to be some kind of plea for the future rather than some kind of petition for today? And so what I want to do to end this service is simply get us all to pray this prayer. The way that Jesus intended us to pray it. With the intent that Jesus had when he taught us to pray it. Our Father, in the highest heavens, in that realm, in that place where everything is as you intended to be. May we, this day, this week, sanctify your name. Make your name holy by laying down our desires, by putting our empires secondary to the cause of your kingdom. And through that, may your will be done. May your kingdom come on earth through us, in my small part of the world, just as it is in heaven. Church, when we miss the life of Jesus, we miss the significance of our own lives. 
And we really believe that what God wants is for people not just to pray this prayer, but to live this prayer. And so here's what we're going to do. I'd invite you to stand. And as we pray this prayer, together as one faith family, I pray that you would pray it in a way that you've never prayed it before. And that through this, your desire will be, God, I will submit my needs, my desires to yours. And I thank you that you will pray this prayer with me together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Go be the hands and feet of Jesus and may God's kingdom come through you this week. Thank you for joining us. You guys have a great week. We'll see you all next week. God bless.